Hi y'all, I'm Marisa Zapata, and this is the podcast where we examine homelessness by talking to researchers and experts, who of course include people with lived experience of homelessness, to understand what we're missing in the headlines and sound bites. In each episode, we will help clear up misconceptions about homelessness and to answer what it would take to prevent and end homelessness in Portland and beyond. Who am I? I'm an associate professor of land use planning at Portland State University and director of PSU's Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative, a research center dedicated to reducing and preventing homelessness, where we lift up the experiences and perspectives of people of color. In this episode, we talk with Julia Delgado, the vice president of the Urban League of Portland, about what it means to be culturally specific in homelessness services and the historic lack of access for Black residents to affordable housing, and how that inspired the Urban League and other culturally specific providers to get involved. I wanted to know first a little bit about you and what brings you to the work on homelessness and what brought you to Portland. Sure. Yeah. So... I moved to Portland to go to graduate school. I went to like technical school. I became a registered nurse when I like turned 19. And then I started working in nursing and I hated it. So then I went to college for health policy and I loved that. And I went to the University of Rochester. And then I just took my basically like direct kind of service skills that I had and then the kind of health background. And I started working in human services almost accidentally. And that's when I was like, oh, this is helping people. So being able to kind of like work one-on-one with individuals and, and help them overcome, you know, whatever obstacles they may be facing and be creative and kind of walk where you've already been. Like I definitely, you know, I'm, Americans are not immigrants, but I'm a first generation uh, American. I just want to make sure that we've touched on this because people are so confused about Puerto Rico and like what that identity is like. And so I think that like, I mean, we can't obviously get into the identity of a Puerto Rican, right? But like the idea that like you're born on an island and, you know, you grew up in New York and, you know, this idea that you have a, a, a similar experience maybe to immigrants, but you're also not an immigrant. Yeah. I mean, I think it's that one of the things that's different from the immigrant experiences is the place of privilege because of the ability to travel back and forth. And that I think a lot of people don't understand that as an immigrant to this country, you don't really have like free reign to like go back to your home country and visit. Whereas if you're a Puerto Rican, so that's the privilege then, you know, but then you are treated like an immigrant. <laughs> you know, you know, you, um, you know, you, you look a little different or you have an accent or, you know, so you have that same experience. And then for the, but then for the Puerto Ricans that live on the island, you're a colonial subject. You have like almost no say in the government that controls you where you kind of have some more privileges because you're able to travel and then fewer privileges because you're like a colonial subject. I think that last sentence just summarizes it really well. And I think that people just will lose sight. And part of why I think this is interesting, particularly for listeners who might be in Portland and Oregon is that they're like, they're, we were talking about before the interview, there's like 10 Puerto Ricans, right? And yeah. I'm joking for all Puerto Ricans. Julia <laughs> made the joke, not I me. Hit me up if you hear this. <laughs> <laughs> we could be oh Puerto Rican matchmaking service. <laughs> um, so what brought you to Portland? You were in oh, so Rochester. So then I was in Rochester, <laughs> then I started working in human services in New York City, and then I wanted to get a, a master's degree. So I, I applied to 
programs that I wanted to get my master's in public health and my master's in social work. And there's only like five programs in the nation. And one of them is the PSU OHSU um, dual degree program. And so I got into that and I moved here just for graduate school. And then I had a baby (laughs) and then I had roots and I stayed, but it's hard now um, because my whole family is back East. So um, that's really hard. I, I get homesick a lot. It's also, again, like not a big community here. So stuff like foods are, or things like that, like are some cultural stuff. But there's like, um, there's like salsa dancing here. That's like, there's like a Cuban restaurant that I feel at home at. Like there's, there's little pockets, but I've been here now since 2008. Um, but I think this is actually a great segue to these conversations about culturally specific. Um, and you're with Urban League. You know, I don't know if you can talk a little bit about what y'all are trying to do in terms of culturally specific and what that actually looks like. Sure. So I've been with Urban League for nine years now, and Urban League is a culturally specific organization that's dedicated to the Black community. And so rather than being an issue-specific organization, we just serve the Black community in a variety of capacities. So we try to carry out our mission through policy um, and system change through direct service and through personal and individual advocacy. And so those are like our three-pronged approach. And I mean, Urban League, our, our chapter is 76 years old. You know, we've really changed the shape of Oregon in a lot of like, I think, meaningful and important ways, like their housing, the Urban League, um, when Governor Hatfield signed the bill, the Urban League president at the time is standing next to him at that bill signing. Um, there've been other like, you know, big public accommodations and, and things like that, that were just kind of foundational to moving towards equity. Oregon's Fair Housing Act is better than the Federal Fair Housing Act and also was implemented before the Federal Fair Housing Act. So even though, you know, Oregon has a ton of racist history and present, um, there are some anti-racist policies that were enacted a little bit in advance of the rest of the nation. And I think due to work from the Urban League. Um, so because of that, we're just this issue-specific organization. I don't really consider myself an expert on housing. What I would consider myself an expert on is just the, the need that was going on met. And so Urban League shifted to the current like role that we have in outreach and services to people who are experiencing homelessness and housing instability really as a result of unmet need that for years, I would say that every person who came through our doors or every person who contacted us on the phone was going through it. They were going through a housing crisis and the resources were insufficient, but also insufficient period, incompetent specifically to the Black community without being able to understand stuff like the historic um, displacement and ongoing displacement or understanding like the basics of overcoming having a criminal background and what that, how that relates to housing and homelessness. And even in the most well-meaning white people, the most well-meaning people have anti-Blackness built into, it's like, it's poison in the air that we breathe. And unless you are actively undoing that, if you're like, I have like a paper bag of fresh air that you're constantly dipping into, you're, you're going to perpetuate that anti-Blackness and so the Urban League is that brush of, like, we're that fresh air. Like, we, it's everything we do is everything who we are. It's actually gotten more and more frustrating over the years to be in human services as other people have become woke. And then they ask you questions about your, uh, how do you be culturally specific or what's your racial equity plan? 
And at Urban League, it's period, it's us. <laughs> That's all we're doing. All of our plans are that. By definition, you're culturally specific, right? And so, you know, it to me, what becomes interesting, and so there's two things I think I was hoping you could talk about. One is the the reality is that attention turned to the organizations that were working with their own racial groups around homelessness for a reason. So like, yeah. what do you think that gap was? Like what, I mean, for lack of a better term, like what were the white dominant organizations fucking up? Why everything. did they? <laughs> they were not serving people of color, black people. And I'm really just my expertise is in, in or people who identify as black or African-American. If you looked back to like the 2013 kind of like reports from the joint office, that was when they started moving to the Hope Project. Does that sound familiar yeah. to you? So when you look at the outputs of that project, they were... 80% white and they were like because Portland is 80% white or whatever yeah. so they were like we're doing great there and that's wrong factually incorrect because um, homelessness at that time was like very much still is and actually worse so now disproportionate among people of color so they were just from the basics not serving enough of that's the hope initiative you know the big ones like the big homeless services organizations all came together on like to move towards coordinated access for adults and their results were not good and at the same time homelessness was going up for black portlanders both in real numbers as in like the number of individuals who identified as not having like a safe place to sleep and also in terms of percentage of the homeless population both of those things were growing at the same time that this initiative was like successful and it's really hard when you're talking about homeless services because any person moving from indoors to outdoors is successful. I'm not taking away that success, but if you're not doing it w- with an eye towards undoing the you know racist damage, it's not fully successful. It's successful for a certain population, but even then, so it's like just the service, but then it was also the outcomes. So that shelters, the shelter system, the um, permanent supportive housing system, evictions from affordable housing were all disproportionately felt in the black community. So like black women were put out of shelter, like at a rate of uh, three times higher than white women in Portland. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, There's a lot of other little, little uh, disparities like that. And at the same time, Urban League was seeing just a ton of people in need whose needs were not being met. And so we did, you know, we did what we do. We like wouldn't go away. We <laughs> went to, at that point, the, court, the joint office didn't exist. We went to the housing bureau um, and we're like, we demand action here for, for Black Oregonians. We applied for some kind of RFP and we didn't get it. I like wouldn't drop it. And then it was really partnerships with JOIN and Cascadia Behavioral Health. They were like, no, we hear what you're actually saying. And okay. But they were not meaningful partnerships they were like you can have a chunk of our budget to do what you do best and that was appreciated but at the time it was better than we had no resources at all when it came to um you know we're just at that point we're best known for our economic development and employment which is then all of our work was failing because if you don't have a house to live your job prospects are real terrible and if you don't you know if you can't have your basic needs met your your outcomes are not going to be great even our senior services like people were moving into um assisted living who really didn't want to or need to because of housing affordability it was like it was impacting all of our other areas of work so then we started uh you know like showing up at the housing bureau and 
So this is interesting because I will tell you when I entered this conversation and some different versions, not of your story in particular, but a lot of the per- person of color serving organizations, what I heard about bringing everybody to the table. So yes, yeah. go on. I'm telling you that for me, it was like, I'm not going away. And I remember a phone meeting where we were just like yelling into the speaker phone about like, you don't see the people that we see every day. And eventually the housing bureau, I don't know how, but they chose to contract with us. I don't think we applied at that point. They just said, you know, we hear you. And then we contracted with them and then we applied for a HUD grant, which was such a long shot. We did not think we would get it because Ryan kept being like, could you tone down the blackness? And we were like, no. So yes. I'm, I'm on the resource advisory committee. I remember your application. We advocated hard. I mean, I don't think there was any doubt that y'all were going to be the, the pick, but it was a big deal, right? Because it was like the first time that like we had put forward these racial equity metrics. Like we were very conscious in how we wrote the thing. But one yeah. of our questions was like, how are you going to help these groups suddenly like be part of the HUD continuum? So it was interesting. So I came on just as a home for everyone was being launched was and probably around the same time that y'all applied. It was interesting because they were talking at that time and it wasn't about specific groups. So talking about, you know, there was this debate about whether it made more sense to invest in culturally specific providers to expand their practices to do homelessness or to invest in the white dominant providers to learn how to do culturally specific work, right? And obviously the prioritization that that A Home for Everyone and the Resource Advisory Council or committee pushed for was, no, just invest in the culturally specific providers if they actually wanna do this work. What is interesting, I think, is that I have never heard a narrative that the culturally specific providers, any of them, we're at the door fighting to be part of it. Oh, no, we definitely were. SEI too. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Part of the family system, but they were fighting to be able to actually deliver uh, culturally specific services. Self-Enhancement Inc., which is the other, there's like four big black organizations in in Portland. SEI is one of them, Self-Enhancement Inc. They were part of a family system, but the way that the family coordinated access worked was like the mobile housing team. And you just got next up. And so even though their expertise and their drive for being part of this was really just, again, to meet a need, you're going to be successful educator, certainly need to make sure that, and so that was an unmet need. So we stepped in, but then they weren't able to deliver culturally specific services. They were serving, you know, anybody that came along. So they were looking to be able to kind of fulfill their mission. We were just looking for like some coins, <laughs> like whatever anybody has that we could get people into housing, we would really appreciate it. I'm so cynical because to me, actually, what happened was we begged and begged and begged. We got applied for this RFP, were denied. I was barking up a lot of trees. Not just me, Urban League was barking up a lot of trees. And then the point in time count for 2013 came out and it showed a 51% increase in unsheltered African Americans, which, whatever, the point in time count is what it is. But that, I believe, is when all of a sudden it was like, well, who was just yelling at me the other day? Wasn't that the Urban League? And that's kind of my cynical perspective on how it happened was that it was like, they weren't, they were like, you don't even do homeless services. We're not really interested. You don't have the outcomes. And then they were like, oh, this is not going to look good for us. Let's have a solution ready. But again, that's my cynical interpretation. No one has told me what it happened. I think happened. you're wrong though. I think that, I mean, just the fact that 
the way I have heard a lot of this narrative was that it was convincing Black and Indigenous and Latinx organizations to go into homeless services, as opposed to your own advocacy and saying you wanted to be part of it. You know, I think it's consistent with a cynical take on it, right? People being surprised by the 2013 point in time count, that's when I came. And so I remember people were surprised. Yeah. And it's like, how dare you be surprised? Like, who are you listening to and who are you not listening to? Because there should be no surprise here. Yeah. And so I, I think it is. I mean, I, I know that the, the point in time count, I don't remember if it was 2013 or 2015, whichever we ended up using for the Home for Everyone rack that year was instrumental in making a case for why we could release a call for the bonus funding that could make the case for Black communities, right? There was, that would, that data was essential, but also how could you not have already anticipated this? So I, I think you're right. I, I don't think there's any question about suddenly everyone freaked out. So this is like one of the things that I think that, you know, I'm always asked by people who are white, like what is different about the work that you're doing, right? And so like, I don't know if you look at it, but I did a survey with Street Roots and the joint office and Shannon Singleton last fall, where we actually went out and asked people a bunch of questions about their experiences being unsheltered. But one of the things I asked was these questions around like, how do you as somebody who's experiencing homelessness, who is a person of color, know that you could be treated well at a place, right? And so like the obvious things that you hear a lot about is looks like or sounds like, yeah. right? And that's really important. But I think that, you know, because of this white dominant space that we operate in, we're, we're going to have to figure out how to add more to it. How does Urban Link differentiate that work I'm an anthropologist originally, so I have a very yeah. specific idea of what yeah. cultural means. Oh, there's so many things <laughs> that it's just like being able to communicate. But I think that what we do in our in our staff is that we hire people who have been through it. Like our main model at Urban League is like the community health worker model, where it's a person who has experienced whatever specific lived experience and then they are heavily trained and that's what we've prioritized over anything else over education over any kind of specific skill is that kind of relationship and trust in the community is like first and foremost and that's what we're screening for and that's what we're hiring for so that people are bringing their personal networks to work I think in other places you're that's amazing tell me more about this tell me more about this well I think it look like it looks like a lot of our hires are word of mouth. A lot of our hires are like, oh, you, you should talk to my friend. He just, you know, he just got his two-year chip. He just got peer certified. He's really trying to do good. And so like one of our first hires on our housing team, our, our homeless outreach team, I will name his name because I know he wouldn't mind. He's not with us anymore, but his name was Darrell White. And he had been like, there was an article about him in Oregonian that he'd been arrested 43 arrests or something like that. And then he got into some kind of like a program at, at Central City and then turned his life around. And that then all he wanted to do since then was help people. So he was a certified peer recovery mentor. And then he started working for us on the intensive street engagement program. But it was really that what why he was successful is because he knew everybody who was out on the streets. And so what we were able to kind of do is get him more training and get him more trained up on like, okay, well, this is how you manage dual relationships and this is how you do that. But that 
firsthand knowledge, I, I would take it 8 million times over somebody who just like had a bachelor's degree and was ready to go. Because I think that firsthand knowledge, especially important where you understand like the layers of adversity that like a black person experiencing homelessness who has like maybe substance use or mental health, all of those layers, it's a, it, it's a unique experience, uniquely terrible. It's a, it's a unique experience that is a lot of, there's not a lot of paths. And so to have a person who has walked the path to kind of walk you through it, there's really no replacement for that. No, no amount of caseworker is going to be able to walk you through it. And I think where we differ from what some of the white dominant culture organizations have culturally specific programs, but those culturally specific programs are still kind of operating within the, the, system that was, and I will argue to the death till I'm blue in the face on this, they were set up for a male, white, veteran population and designed to serve that population. And I will agree with you 100%. But they won't. They don't. They don't oh, care. I know, my friend. I know. <laughs> but that, so that even if you're operating in that confine, all of your resources, all of your processes, all of your rules and regulations and program agreements and all of those things are confined within that structure. And we didn't have any structure <laughs> at all. We was like, application? Okay, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. We should have an application. But for real, we, we didn't have structure. So we really got to make a lot of it up and then change it and say, oh, this is, okay, yeah, this isn't working. We need to maybe get an agreement with the landlord, like, or, okay, this isn't working. We need to maybe blah, blah, blah. Um, we need someone visiting every day. We need someone, whatever. And so we got to make the structures. We got to build our structure for our community, just like they did <laughs> during it, like, you know, 50 years later, but we got to do that. And so our then, you know, as we expanded, we thought about like what made Darrell successful. Okay, well, it was his experience. It was that. So then we were like, okay, that that's who we'll hire for. And we interviewed for it. We talked about, we do a lot of like scenario work in our interviews so that we're setting people up for success. And well, then we also have to look, I think that one of the things that why we need to be treated differently than other organizations is we need to invest more in training than probably like a dominant cultural organization would we need to invest more in supervision because you're sometimes taking people who like this is early in their career, or early in this part of their career, and they need a lot of check-ins. But I think that they're they're so motivated to give back. And that Urban League can be a place where you get to not just give broadly, but give to your own community. Um, it's really, I don't know, I don't think there's a lot of organizations where you, where you really get that and that it's celebrated and that you get to people say a lot about working here like this is the first job that I've ever gotten to be myself I actually feel that way here that's huge too like yeah I mean I work in a white dominant institution and I worked in an almost exclusively black office and an almost exclusively Latino office and the difference between how you show up is is amazing right and so even like the, the white dominant organizations that have culturally specific programs, when I think about being a staff member in those programs, that experience from the jump is just going to be different. And that's going to change how that program functions. 
right? Because it, it's not going to ever be a full bubble, right? And so the staff is still going to be coming up against those white dominant structures and ways of having to be in a space. I had two quick other questions. So to hope for everyone meeting, you were really pushing back on like how housing first, you know, with its fancy name and fancy studies is really just what communities of color, particularly black communities already do and already knew. And I'm wondering if you had anything that you could add to that. Like, what is it about black communities that, or your experience working with black communities that told you this housing first model is obvious and the best way to serve black communities? Yeah, well, I remember that meeting in particular because I was, I think I was pushing back most from that they were trying to say transitional housing, capital T, capital H, was not worthy of exploration because of the evidence base that it was not cost efficient or whatever. And that was annoying to me on a level because the evidence base, if you actually go look at the evidence base, you will see that it is a white male veteran population <laughs> which they were studying. So I just don't want to take it as fact, first of all. But that second of all, so that's like the housing first, uh, the rules and regulations that come with housing first, they're all approaching them with these capital letters because that's how HUD brings it down to us. We don't need to do that. We are our own independent jurisdiction. I understand we want to be attractive to HUD and keep ourselves competitive. And so some of the things need to be like in compliance, but they don't get to speak to our investment strategies. And so to be like, well, HUD doesn't, doesn't like transitional housing, so we can't do transitional housing. And I don't even necessarily think that transitional housing, the way that they're thinking of it and the transitional housing, the way that I was thinking of it are the same thing. I'm not thinking of capital T, capital H. I'm thinking that there are people, women, um, survivors of domestic violence who do better in kind of like congregate living settings because community is intrinsic to mental health. And we don't, there's not, the black community is so diluted in, in Oregon due to gentrification that um, that resilience that's built into um, other cities that have black neighborhoods, which don't exist in Portland anymore. So you can't call somebody to say, hey, can you watch the baby for two hours? I have to run to blah, blah, blah. You can't do that because everybody's so spread apart. There are some opportunities to like explore, like what would actually work best, like listening to the communities impacted to be like, well, what would they want? And like when you're in the most stressful period of your life, and then you're kind of handed a house key to a place really far out. You don't have a network of support. Returning to your network of support, even if they're terrible for you and it's not your own goal, but that um, belonging is essential to survival. And so we could create communities where, where people could support each other. And when those communities are created, even for a short time, uh, they work. So I feel like there was more to your question that I didn't answer, but that was like the backstory of why I was like, shut up, because I just don't think that we need to like think about what HUD says when we're trying to plan for whatever. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, we've got this huge supportive housing services fund that's coming out. Like, what are you like really looking for to see that we're doing racial equity different? I have been from the jump so skeptical of this measure. And I still am. <laughs> so I, um, I'm, I'm worried that it's 
I'm very worried because I think eventually the measure will just be sort of like to prop up the homeless industrial complex. And I'm worried about it from that. So I think that investing more in public discourse that welcomes people of all incomes and of all housing backgrounds into all the housing markets in Portland is something that we need to maybe do some work on. There's just like a lot of nimbyism that prevents any progress. I like the motel shelter idea because at least there's plumbing. Um, so I think investing in those is maybe a good short-term solution um, to really get human beings to, to be able to have an opportunity to live indoors um, like as a baseline. So I think that that's okay. I'm worried about how so much of it is de dedicated to supportive services because it assumes a deficit in skill or in life skills. And there will always be people who live in poverty and that's because of capitalism. <laughs> and so we don't, well, certainly there are people who are experiencing homelessness and a, a large majority of them definitely need services to, to be able to access housing, like no question. I think that we're ignoring like all of the multitude of failures that have led to people experiencing homelessness. And so we're taking the most expensive solution, serve the homeless people and investing very heavily in it because it's visible. And we're skipping all the steps along the way. And so with this massive bill that people you know that like the like Oregonian is going to report on in a year and be like, no change in homelessness, what a waste of money. It'll like take people and get them opposed to these kinds of, of bills. You know, Portland Business Alliance is going to ring that bell. And then the little investments that we could be and should be making on prevention of homelessness, like investing in more affordable housing, investing in better like school programming and better economic opportunities and better mental health and better substance use and those like investments for people who are not yet and will never experience homelessness because they've been they've had an intervention that they needed to prevent it that's what i want to see and i understand we already have the problem so like okay we have to deal with it but i'm just worried about the like way that they did the breakup of the a and b and and Group A can get this kind of service and group B is this amount of investment. And I think that if they had just been like, here's money overall, it's to prevent homelessness. I would have liked that better. <laughs> I guess that's not done in government. Yeah. No, I think that, I, but I think that one of the things that's missing, and this is helping me think about how to articulate this better, is that when we split up the populations this way, we're missing the opportunity to think about how they are actually connected in terms of both prevention and resolution, right? So like, you know, and I think criminal justice is always the easiest example, but I've been really thinking about like the mental health components because right lately, because everyone talks about how critical mental health is for, pe for people who have been chronically homeless with severe mental illness, but that also that mental health providers, if we're going to be successful with people of color have to actually match the racial group of the person that they're serving. Yes. And we know that with mental health, that is even more important than other kinds of healthcare. Period. And so, so I, I get that. And yet, like, I don't see anybody talking about the fact that we have a deficit of mental health providers in Oregon to start with, yes. and an even more escalated deficit for mental health providers of color. And 
if people who are experiencing homelessness right, right now who are Black and unsheltered and chronically homeless need that kind of mental health support, well, so do other people who are on the cusp of homelessness, right? And so if instead we said, if we do not have mental health providers who are Black here to serve people with severe mental illness, that helps do both of these things. And instead we're like, does that go for population A or population B? And I just feel like we're missing the actual racial equity things that are both these upstream things that you're talking about, as well as the ways in which we solve homelessness. They're not separate things, which is what's been driving me crazy. I'm like, it's the same thing. And and population A and population B are the same people on different timelines. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And we have a limited opportunity to impact them on timeline A, the briefer timeline. Yes. And so instead, (laughs) we're going to throw all of our resources at population B. And I, again, being a cynical person, I think it's because population B is more visible, but population A is much larger. Absolutely. And and, trauma, it's just less prolonged. And population, well, I get confused on which is which. Me too. The unsheltered chronic population is visibly wise whiter, right? And again, that's not true if you look at the numbers, but it's both that they are visible and that they are white and visible. Yeah, white and so. But then that's, you know, your your study that you did with Shannon, where it was like people of color who are unsheltered, who you were able to encounter, well, like didn't have a tent, didn't have a food resource the tent thing killed me no me too there me too I should, we should yeah we got the money from the join ups to go buy tents and give them out we did we did that we were like awesome we awesome them. yeah no that was yeah, I, that, our, we read that report in our housing team meeting and we're just like Fuck, like this is like so seriously crazy. like this we're actually having goddamn disparities on tents that report was really important to us yeah, it was great to do too. And it's one of those things that like, you know, it's nice that to have street Julia as a partner, Delgado, so. the vice president of the Urban awesome. League of great, Portland. Great right thank now. you for joining like us today. If you'd like to learn more about our guests, yeah, thank you so and much for making suggested time. This was awesome. Thank you for this I hope you got Check out our website. Understanding homelessness. Yes. It was so good to connect. And thank you for thinking of me. Oh yeah, thanks for joining. This is awesome.